Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? <laughs> I was, uh, I'm not too used to these uh, little ear things, and <laughs> but uh, I think we'll get it worked out. Um, greetings to you uh, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm very honored to be here. Uh, my wife and I have really enjoyed uh, being a part of this church community uh, this past year, and uh, Thank you so much for uh, having me speak this morning. For those of you that uh, still don't know me, my name is Ed Adcock, and my wife is Rosemary. And uh, it's uh, one of those uh, one of those days. It's uh, gorgeous out, a little bit uh, uh, unusual for this time of year, uh, but we give thanks to the Lord for these little blessings. And uh, before we go a little bit uh, too, f too much farther, if you have access to your pew Bible, uh, we will be speaking on uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And in the pew Bible, uh, that starts at the bottom of page 1027. Now, most everybody loves to have, uh, or loves to see at least, or read uh, these epic battles that we see in, in movies and in books uh, about uh, battles over good and evil. And you, you know the type uh, where a, a character in the story uh, seems to be doing okay, and then all of a sudden some bad guy comes in and and either robs him or, or takes advantage of him somehow, and, and he loses everything. And, and then this silent hero comes in and takes up this victim's cause and does battle with the villain. And then over a course of, of this battle, the, uh, the hero is victorious and restores our original character back to uh, a, a state previous to his loss. And we see this uh, on a grand scale in the life of Jesus, in the scriptures, where Jesus uh, is the one that wins back for mankind the relationship that man had with God before the fall. And the enemy of our souls, Satan, is vanquished. And so I want to uh, look at this this morning in our, in our scriptures. Basically what we're saying this morning is that Jesus is the second Adam. You know, Adam fell in the Garden of Eden when he rebelled against God. And that loss, and that loss that threw mankind into uh, subjugation to sin and death, that loss then was taken up by Jesus as the second Adam, and he did battle with Satan and, um, and won back for us that relationship that was lost with God. So to do this, 
I want to set a little bit of context. In Matthew, Matthew is uh, writing to a, a group of Jewish Christians, and he's very, very motivated to show his readers the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is. And he starts this off in the beginning with a, a, a lineage of uh, fathers uh, having sons all the way through, starting from Abraham all the way to uh, King David, and from uh, King David all the way to Jesus. So what, uh, what Matthew is doing is he's showing the legitimate lineage that Jesus has to King David as king over Israel, and all the way back to Abraham, who was the beginning of the children of Israel. And so he's identifying Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises that God made to Israel. So given that identity, then we move on to uh, chapter 2, and we see some stories about Jesus as he was uh, young, where his parents had to flee uh, from Israel down into Egypt because King Herod wanted to kill uh, anybody uh, that had that potential of taking his throne. And because and, Herod knew of the prophecies of the uh, one that was to come, that was to be king over Israel. And so through that, after Herod died, Mary and Joseph takes Jesus back. And this is documented in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew when he makes this quote from Hosea. He says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And that is hearkening back to when God called Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. So you see how Jesus is being identified as, uh, as his identity, identification with Israel. Then we get to chapter 3, where uh, John the Baptist is starting to uh, baptize uh, the children of Israel, the, uh, the Jewish people at that time. And Jesus shows up, and he says uh, in, in, in one text, in, in John, he says, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognizes who Jesus is. And, he, and Jesus uh, has John baptize him for righteousness' sake, because John did not want to baptize him. He says, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, permit this for righteousness' sake. And so as Jesus is baptized and as he comes out, there is somebody who testifies to the identity of Jesus Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And then also, when that happens, the voice out of heaven, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we have John, we have the Holy Spirit, we have God the Father all together testifying to the identity of who Jesus is. 
And then after that baptism, after Jesus hears those words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, then the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness where someone else recognizes the identity of Jesus. And that's where our text picks up. So if you are able, please stand with me while we read from this text. Honoring God's word, we pick up at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, all, uh, behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for loving us enough to send your son to us while we were still your enemies. By the power of your Holy Spirit, please give us understanding of this passage that we may truly learn how to love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. This we ask through the name of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage that we just read, for me, uh, causes me to ask some questions. Um, first, if Jesus could be tempted, was it possible for him to succumb to that temptation? And another question is, why did Jesus have to be tempted in the first place? When I was growing up, I, I grew up in the church, and every time I read this passage and every time we sat in Sunday school and listened to this, uh, I'm thinking in the back of my head, you know, Jesus, he's the Savior of the world. He's God's Son. How, you know, what does this temptation have to do with me? Was it even real? 
I mean, if Jesus was God, like the scriptures proclaim, and I'm a human, why, would, why did he have to be tempted at all in the first place? You know, I trusted in Jesus at a very young age because he died for my sins on that cross, and that paid the penalty for my sins. I, I remember uh, uh, my grandmother would tell me uh, that I was three years old when I jumped into her lap and said, uh, Mima, I give my heart to Jesus. I mean, it was, you know, it was a done deal. Uh, of course, there was a lot of maturing throughout my years of growing after that statement, but um, I always had this trust in Jesus as my Savior for the forgiveness of my sins. And so when I came, always came to this part of the scriptures, I'm thinking, you know, of course he's not going to sin. He's God. God doesn't sin. So why does this passage, why is this even in the Bible? Well, there are some really important reasons why, and it has a real important impact on our lives when we get further. So, could Jesus have succumbed to temptation? Now, we've seen a lot of uh, publicity in, in movies and books uh, about things like the last temptation of Christ and the Da Vinci Code, and, and those authors imagine a story that uh, what if Jesus uh, succumbed to temptation and did this or whatever fantasy their lusts wanted them to depict Jesus doing. That's not what the scriptures say here. Uh, the deeper issue is the unique person of Christ. Jesus is proclaimed in scriptures as real flesh and blood, a real human being with physical limitations just like you and me. However, the scriptures also teach that he is the exact imprint of the glory of God and that he was in the beginning with God and was God who became flesh. So the scriptures declare that Jesus was like us in every way except without sin. So does this invalidate his temptation and make uh, him not like us? And I would have to say, no way. He was like us in every way. Just because Jesus did not give in to temptation does not disqualify his humanity. And it didn't lessen his trial. In fact, because he did not succumb, he is the only man ever to feel the full brunt of Satan's attack. Now, last time I... Uh, spoke to you. Uh, I said that uh, I was in the Navy at one point in my life, and, and while I was in the Navy, I did a little bit of boxing. Um, but with that, imagine this. Uh, a boxer meets his challenger in the ring, and, you know, sometimes you see these knockouts in the first round. <laughs> sometimes, uh, like some of these guys, like Mike Tyson, would knock them out in the first few seconds of the first round. Uh, so the person that gets knocked out 
does he really feel the full brunt and all of the skill and all of the coordination and technique that the winner has? Or is it the one that is able to withstand the whole 12 rounds battling out and countering every single tactic that his enemy has? See, my contention is, is that Jesus himself went full rounds with, with Satan, and it was for a reason. And he was the only one that was able to uh, defeat Satan throughout his lifetime by not falling into temptation. But because he'd never fell, he was always feeling the attacks of the enemy. He didn't get knocked out. He kept going. See, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter, chapter 12, verse 4, it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But Jesus did. And he did it on your behalf. So because he did that on your behalf, Jesus experienced temptation more strongly than anyone because precisely he never gave in, he never sinned, and the temptation always remained in front of him. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, how was that able to be? I mean, we get tempted all the time. And we fall. We succumb to those temptations. But Jesus did not. So what is that uh, temptation? How was that able to happen? Well, we think of a temptation in two ways. We have temptations from two different places, if you will, two different places of origin. One source is common to everybody, and that is the outside influence of the unbelieving world and Satan. Satan is always there to show us the pleasures of his kingdom to entice us to rebel against God. And we see this in our text. We see this in our lives as well. The other source of temptation is from our own selves, from within. James 1, verses 13 and 14 states this, let no man say when he's tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But listen to this. Each one, each one of us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. See, Jesus' desires and his passions were totally sold out for the Father. A singular and undivided allegiance to the will of the Father. On the other hand, 
Our allegiance, more often than not, is for our own comfort and whatever gives us the most pleasure. Our allegiance all too often is for ourselves first. That's why we fail during our testing. It has been rightly said that most people flee from temptation usually give a forwarding address. So, those two sources, outside from the devil and our own internal lusts. So it's, we see here then, it was impossible for Jesus to give in to temptation. Okay, next question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted? The answer to that lies in our text in the three replies that Jesus gives to Satan. So let's take a look at the first temptation. Verses three and four. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation that we see is this, the challenge of independence apart from God. Notice that Satan starts his challenge by saying, if you are the son of God. Now Satan knows very good and well who he is addressing. He also knows that God did not lie when Jesus was when God the Father declared to Jesus at his baptism that you are my son in whom I am well pleased. So this type of challenge is not saying uh, if, meaning he wants to find out if Jesus is the son of God. He knows who he's talking to and he's challenging him, saying, since you're the son of God, do this. He's trying to goad Jesus into doing some uh, miraculous act using his own power. And that's not what Jesus was here to do for himself. So this is a direct challenge and assault on Jesus' character. And Satan is goading him to prove himself. Satan is testing the very one whom all things were made including himself, and he knows it. So it's no coincidence that Jesus is quoting then from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This answer, uh, if you remember Matthew in his writing here early on, he's trying to associate Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So Jesus' response appropriately is using the context of Moses and the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. Listen to Moses address the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses says, And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, 
testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you understand that, here it is, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses goes on to say, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So in addressing Israel's rebellious nature, Moses called Israel to trust in God for their daily needs. Moses reminded them that God was really all they needed anyway. So even though Jesus is famished, in his 40-day fast. Jesus does not depend on his own ability to provide for his life's provision, but he trusts in God the Father. Now, when John Calvin was commenting on this passage, Calvin said, though we live on bread, we must not ascribe the support of life to the power of bread but to the secret kindness by which God imparts to bread the quality of nourishing our bodies. And also, he said, but if Christ did not consider himself to be at liberty to change stones into bread without the command of God, much less is it lawful for us to procure bread, food by fraud, robbery, violence, or murder. Now, obviously, Jesus was able to uh, do what Satan was goading him to do. But again, he was not there for himself. So the second temptation. Not only is he being tempted to um, show his independence apart from God, but he's... In the second temptation, he's challenging God's goodness. Let's take a look at verses 5 through 7. Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and tries to go Jesus into this public display of power where Satan twists the promises of God's care, loving care and protection in, in, for his people in Psalm 91. So he's actually testing God's faithfulness. So Jesus again replies with the phrase that is written, which in the context of the Greek grammar, it means this. It stands written and is still in force to this day, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So again, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy where Moses was reminding the children of Israel of their rise of rebellion up against God when they were thirsty in the wilderness. So we're back into this wilderness thing. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. There was a correlation there for a reason. So when the children of Israel were thirsty, what did they do? Instead of 
crying out to God to please provide for them because they are trusting in his provision. What did they do? They went to Moses who represented God to them and they were going to stone him because they were thirsty and they were crying out, is God with us or not? They were putting God on trial. And that's what Jesus is saying. You shall not put the Lord your God on trial. You're not to challenge God's goodness. You are to trust and cling to God's goodness. See, the enemy will always come to his people with that little tweak and saying, did God really say that? Does God really have your best intentions at heart? Is he really that good? Well, just to hedge your bets, you should do this. Jesus knew that, and that's why he replied with this particular passage of Scripture. So we've seen then that Jesus was first tempted to be independent from God's provision, and that second temptation was to challenge God's goodness. Now this third temptation is very peculiar, and we must not underestimate it. This is important. The third temptation is challenging Christ's allegiance to God. Look again at uh, verses 8 and 9, and, um, where again the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Notice that Satan is offering Jesus all of the kingdoms of this world. So is he offering something that he can't give? I mean, Satan is the author of lies. He could be lying. Jesus didn't dispute that issue with him. He didn't say, you can't do that because there's not yours to give. Now, Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 4 adds another facet to this conversation. Where Luke is, when Luke writes this, he says, uh, Satan says to Jesus, I will give you all this domain and its glory, and listen to this, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. So Luke's account of this adds that little tidbit of information. It has been handed over to me, and I give it over. It has been handed over to me. Who handed the kingdoms of this earth to Satan? Or should I ask, who had dominion over the earth before Satan? Uh, typically, uh, answers to the theological questions in Sunday school, usually the answer is Jesus. <laughs> uh, that's not this time. Dominion was given to the image bearers of God. If you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, they were, in essence, supposed to be vice regents 
over God's creation. Listen to Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living being that moves on the earth. That included the serpent, by the way. Mankind was the vice regents over God's creation. They were the image bearers of God, cooperating with God to be those uh, people within the image of God, showing love and care over God's creation. But because they yielded to Satan's temptation by assuming, looking at the forbidden fruit of that tree, that they were warned by God that if you take of this tree in in that day you will die, and Satan said, well, you won't really die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. See, Satan, the serpent, was tempting Adam and Eve to shift their allegiance from God to themselves. And they fell for it. So when that happened, Adam abdicated his rule and rose up in rebellion against God. Adam shifted his allegiance from God to his own autonomy. Therefore, Adam introduced the curse of sin into our world. The Apostle Paul writes about this in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And here's the the key part of this scripture. The transition was, uh, transgression was uh, was not the same as Adam. Adam who was the type of the one who was to come. You see, the promise of Jesus, the second Adam. So here's the full brunt of Jesus' third temptation. Satan is offering a complete surrender of his rights to the kingdom of man. He can re- Jesus can reclaim mankind for himself and have a people for himself without all of the suffering on the cross. All Jesus would have to do is bow. So why didn't he? Well, Jesus, as the second Adam, knows that Satan is tempting him to turn his allegiance from God just like Adam did first in the garden. And Jesus deals Satan a decisive blow by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
So by the way, had Jesus succumbed to any one of those temptations, he would not be without sin. And if he is not without, if he is uh, not without sin, that he doesn't qualify to be our redeemer. He doesn't qualify to be that sinless lamb that the Father gave as a sacrifice to pay for our sin debt. Jesus will take back the kingdom of the world and conquer death. But it won't be bypassing God's merciful plan to reconcile humanity to him. Jesus is faithful to God where Adam and the children of Israel were not. We need to realize that we're not faithful either. A lot of times, our allegiances are to ourselves and to our own agendas. Our allegiances are to our own comfort, to our own wealth, to our own enter entertainment. Jesus' allegiance was solely sold out to God the Father. You know, there used to be a popular saying that was placed on wristbands that said, what would Jesus do? Well, we know exactly what Jesus did. It's written in his word. We don't have to guess about it. We don't have to make up some sort of uh, justification for an action and say, well, you know, what would Jesus do? We, we know what he did. He was totally sold out to the Father, but it was for a reason See, he came here for a reason to restore our worship disorder. A lot of times we worship ourselves, we worship our entertainment. Jesus showed us that God is the only one to be worshiped. Listen to the writer of Hebrews <clears throat> talking about uh, uh, Jesus and, and his trials. He said, Since therefore the children, us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had power over, of death, and that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, therefore he had to be made like his brothers who in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, meaning satisfaction, God's uh, satisfaction for our sins, for the debt that we incurred. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is why uh, last time I spoke, we're to consider Jesus 
and we're to look to him as the perfecter of our faith. See, Jesus' obedient life earned for us righteousness. I want to read just quickly from Romans 5.19. For as, and this is, uh, yeah, 5.19. For as by the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the reason why Jesus was living a perfect life as a human being on this planet. See, when God says the shedding of, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins, I was always wondering why didn't Jesus just come down, get crucified, get resurrected, and go back up, and then everything was taken care of. The life of Jesus, his life, not only his death and resurrection, but the life of Jesus, who was in every way like us, but without sin, his righteousness that he earned provided for us the possibility that we too would be righteous. Jesus did that for us. So that's why he was tempted. He was procuring righteousness for his people. Of which Jesus himself said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So the life of Jesus on this earth as one of us earned for us through our faith in him, that righteousness by which without it we don't see the kingdom of heaven. His death and resurrection paid for our sin. His life earned our righteousness, his righteousness that gets imputed to us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we would be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we rebelled against you and fell into sin, we became subject to death and to Satan, the enemy of our souls. But you, in your great love and mercy, sent your Son to become one of us, taking up our debt to you and made full payment of our sins by his death on the cross. Through his victory over sin and death, he now pleads for us on our behalf. For the sake of your son, have mercy on us and forgive us. We thank you, Father, that we can be made clean again and have an eternal life full of joy with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns together with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.